0: Judges chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want to give a history lesson to all of you that are under the age of 35. Okay, so if you're under the age of 35, back in the day, there were these things called record stores. You actually went into a record store and you actually bought a record album or you bought a cassette tape. And later on, you bought CDs. You could actually physically go buy your music in an actual record. Brick and mortar store. Now, don't raise your hands, but how many of you remember the very first record album or tape or CD that you bought with your own money? Anybody remember that that first record? Well, this is gonna date me, but at the age of eight, I remember saving up money for allowance, and my mom took me to the record store, and the very first album I bought with my own money at the age of eight was: here are you ready for it? The BG's Greatest Hits. When I was younger, I was really excited when my favorite band came out with a new album or a new song. Just a few weeks ago, the Beatles released a new song. The remaining members of the Beatles, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, released a song called Now and Then. It was It was from a track that they found from John Lennon back in the 70s that was really scratchy, that was really bad quality, but because of the new technology, they were able to strip away all that noise and then they found a guitar track from George Harrison and so they released, after all these years, the Beatles' newest song. And needless to say, I wasn't that impressed with it, but it was okay, being a new song. We like new songs when new songs come out. Now, I'm not a huge soccer fan, but you've probably seen those images when your team wins, the soccer team. And what happens? The entire stadium starts swaying and swinging, and they start waving flags, and everybody in unison starts singing this song that nobody knows because we're not soccer fans. Maybe some of you are, but they sing with vigor, and the whole stadium is singing their, their team song, and there's like thousands of people swaying and singing the victory song. Maybe it's something like We Are the Champions or something like that. Now, why do I bring up singing a new song and loudly, boldly singing after a major victory? Well, Judges chapter 5 records for us a song, a victory song, a call to praise the Lord for His power and salvation. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 go together. Remember last week, chapter 4, we saw the narrative. We saw the account. Israel defeated the Canaanite army. We saw that graphic killing of Sisera by Jael that put the tent spike in his temple. And so there were four main characters in chapter 4, if you remember from last week. There was Deborah, the prophetess. She was the shining star in a dark world. And then you had Barak, who hesitated. He wanted the presence of the Lord to go with him, and his army routed the 900 chariots of the Canaanites. But if you remember, he didn't get the victory. He didn't get the glory. The glory went to Jael, the other character. She's the non-Israelite woman that actually killed the enemy in her tent. And then you had Sisera, the general of the Canaanite army, who was also assassinated in that tent. And so our point from last week was this, God alone receives the glory in salvation. And so in chapter 5, we have a song that describes the events that we saw last week in chapter 4. But it gives us a little bit more information and it gives us a little bit more theological understanding. Now, this song can be divided into three main sections and then there's a theological conclusion in the last verse. So let's look at this song. The first thing we see in this song of Deborah and Barak is a call to praise the Lord for his victory. A call to praise the Lord for his victory. So let's read verses 1 through 11. And by the way, before I read this, this is one of the oldest songs in the Bible. And if you go back to the original Hebrew, there's a meter to it based upon the syllables. It kind of has a meter and a beat to it. So this was meant to be sung with kind of a beat and a meter. We, we won't get that from our English translations, and I'm not even going to attempt to do it in the Hebrew. So let's just read it in our English, and we'll get the feel of it, okay? Here we go. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. And here's the song. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Now this is a call from Deborah and Barak for Israel to join them in singing this victory song. All of Israel is to join in in praising God for his victory victory. And in verse 4, notice that there's this imagery of a thunderstorm. When you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. This is a, an idea of how God won the battle for them. If you remember last week, the Lord routed them by possibly causing a hailstorm or some type of storm to come and clog up their chariots. And so God here is being praised for bringing the thunder. Now remember, the false god Baal, the Canaanite god, he was the, god, the storm god. He was the god of thunder. And so Deborah comes along and says, no, the true god of thunder, the true god that, that quakes is the god of Israel, not these false gods. And he, and he came like he came in Mount Sinai. The Lord came like he came at Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning representing his holiness and his power. Do you remember what happened at Sinai when the Lord appeared at the mountain to give the Ten Commandments? In Exodus 19, 18-19, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. God is coming to rescue the Israelites in thunder and lightning like he did at Sinai. Psalm 18, 11 through 14 alludes to this as well. He made darkness as covering. Him, Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through these clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. God came in thunder and lightning and power and routed the enemy. Now in verses 6-8... Deborah recalls the desperation and the plight of the peoples under that 20 years of oppression. You remember, they were under King Jabin's oppression for 20 years. They were weak, they were powerless, they were defenseless. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. In other words, the average Israelite had to go on the back roads. They had to travel in secret because bandits would come and steal from them. Or maybe there were heavy tolls that they would have to pay. The Canaanites were oppressing them, so they, they really couldn't travel on the main roads. They had to go on the back roads. Severe tolls. I remember the first time we went to India. We had to go that, some of you have been, with that, that winding mountainous road that three hour drive that gets you up to the villages. Well, we had gone there when it was a festival, and here's what the festival was the women were supposed to stop all the cars and demand that you pay a toll. If you did not pay the toll, they would throw this red powder on your car. Well, needless to say, about every 10 miles, we got stopped by these women that would, they would like, put down these big poles they'd make us pay the toll and finally norm who was driving at the time got really angry and he just started honking his horn and he just kind of kept going we, we it took us about six hours as opposed to three hours because of all the tolls we had to pay on the back roads and so this is what's going on in israel they have to take the back roads it's not safe for them to even travel and then in verse 8 there's no weapons there's no shields there's nothing to fight the enemy. Was there a shield or spear spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? No, there's not. They're weak. It's not until Deborah emerges as the mother of Israel to announce victory. She announces victory, and then Barak becomes the military leader, and through his military might, the Lord delivers Israel from their enemy. And see, this is the beauty of the gospel. I, I love this about the gospel. God does not want us to get our acts together so that he can save us. God looks at us in our weakness, in our desperation, in our powerlessness, and he chooses to save us by his sovereign grace. Romans 5, 6 says this, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Interesting word, weak, that Paul uses there. It means total incapacity to do any good. It means morally bankrupt. When we were morally bankrupt, when we had nothing to offer God except for our sin and our shame, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ chose to save those that were desperate, that were helpless, that were hopeless, that were hell-bound. And in times of weakness, what do we often want to do? I can do it. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can handle it. I've, I've got this, God. Thanks for your help, but I got this. That's how we often want to operate. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. One of the greatest lies that we've heard in America is rely on yourself. God helps those who help themselves. No, God helps those who are weak, helpless, and can't do anything for themselves because He is such a gracious God. Now, verses 2 and verses 9 say something about the Israelites. What do verses 2 and verses 9 say? It's repeated there, so it's important. Verse 2, the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. The people offered themselves willingly. Verse 9, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Now, that's a question. Did each and every tribe offer themselves willingly to the battle? Let's find out the second part of this song. And the second thing we see is the people's various responses to God's rescue. How did the the tribes respond? Remember, these are 12 tribes living together in Israel, in the promised land, And and they're not quite unified. They have to band together. And so verses 12 through 23 shows us how the different tribes reacted. So let's keep reading. Verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down from me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their route they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why do you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben... There was great searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulon is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of sil- silver, for from heaven the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Some tribes did well. Some tribes did not. Now, again, you may not remember all the different names of the 12 tribes, but they're listed here, most of them. So four tribes did well. Ephraim is blessed, and they're mentioned first because that's the tribe of Deborah. Benjamin, Zebulon, and Issachar are in a positive light. However, there are some that don't join the battle. So Reuben... What does it say about Reuben in verse 16? Reuben had a lot of searching going on, a lot of soul searching, but they decided to stay home with the sheep. I don't really want to go to battle. I've got to take care of my sheep. I'll stay home. Thank you very much. Gilead, which is another name for Manasseh, in verse 17 it just said they stayed home. Dan and Asher, they thought trading, merchandise, um, commerce, sea trading was more important. Now, these tribes did not join the battle. And those, there's nothing wrong with taking care of your sheep. There's nothing wrong with staying home. There's nothing wrong with doing business. Those things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. But those were distractions that kept those tribes from joining in the battle. In other words, they did not give themselves willingly to the Lord. They made excuses. They did not join their brothers in the fight. They remained passive. One author said it this way. He says, quote, Reuben, Gad, Dan, and Asher stayed home soul-searching and navel-gazing. <laughs> kind of sitting around navel-gazing. Now, Meroz, there in verse 23, curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. Now, this is a kind of confusing because this is the only time Meraz is mentioned in the entire Bible. Who is Meraz and why are they cursed? Best guess, this is what most scholars think, Meraz was probably the village that was closest to Mount Tabor that should have joined the battle. It it was most logical, probably they were the most obvious to come join the battle, and it was the village that did not join the battle. They stayed home, and so they were cursed. And then in verses 19 through 22, you see the description of the battle itself. Remember in chapter 4, verse 15, go back to chapter 4, verse 15 for a moment. We saw this last week. Verse 15 is the key to the entire chapter. Chapter 4, verse 15, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. The Lord routed them. Remember, that word was often used of a hailstorm or a torrential rainfall but I want you to know a different detail so in chapter 4 it was rain But look at verse 20 how did God sovereignly win this battle interesting look at verse 20 from heaven the stars fought from their courses they fought against Sisera the stars fought I have no idea what this means Many scholars think maybe this was an eclipse. Somehow at just that sovereign moment, God caused a hailstorm and he also made it dark that the stars somehow were involved in this battle. We really don't know. All we know is that God sovereignly ordained weather and stars at that particular time to work on behalf of Israel in that battle. And then notice what it says there too in verse 20. Actually, verse 21, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Now, Kishon, at that time, in that season, Kishon would have been a tiny little brook, a little babbling brook that you could probably jump over. Easy to cross. But what is it called here? A torrent that swept away nine chariots. Kind of reminds you when Pharaoh's army was wrapped up in the Red Sea. So God miraculously works here in this moment. We don't know how. They knew how because they saw it. But somehow the stars and the, the rain and everything worked together sovereignly for the Lord to rout 900 chariots. This weak defenseless army of Israelites won the battle because God fought on their behalf and did something miraculous. Now, What's the theology of this section? Now, the the, the work of deliverance was God. God routed the enemy. God won the battle. But here's the point. The people did not sit passively by and just let God do it. That's called fatalism. They took responsibility. That's called hyper-Calvinism. God is sovereign, so I just sit back and do nothing. That's not biblical. Well, God's sovereign. Everything's going to work out, so we shouldn't pray, should we? God's sovereign. He's going to save who he wants to save, so we shouldn't do evangelism, right? God's got it all worked out. God's sovereign. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and so we shouldn't give tithes and offerings to the church because God's going to work it all out. And all the elders said, no, Sean, don't teach him that. Well, God's got it all figured out, and so we really don't need to use our spiritual gifts in the life of the church, because after all, God has got it all figured out. So two truths here. Okay, does God have it all figured out? Yes. Does that mean that we're passive and we don't have a part to play in it? No. God had it all figured out. God won the battle, but they offered themselves willingly. See, here's the point. God accomplishes His sovereign ends through our human means. I don't know how it all works out, but God uses our prayers. God uses our evangelism. God uses our giving. God uses our serving. God uses our spiritual gifts to accomplish His sovereign predetermined ends. And so don't you ever think, because we as a church believe in the sovereignty of God, that that gives you a free pass to be passive. I don't, I don't need to pray. I don't need to do evangelism. I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to sit back and let God do it all. Well, yes, God does it all, but God does it all through you and me. And that's how God won the battle. They still had to go out on the battlefield and fight. They still had to amass their, their army and go out. And some of them did and some of them didn't. But in the end, God won the battle. And here's, another, here's another side note here. We need each other in this spiritual battle. All the tribes did not participate. Some of them did. As a church family, we can't have just some on the sidelines and some participating. We all need to be in this together. We need each other. The battle belongs to the Lord. It is a spiritual battle, but we need one another. That's why one of our values, when we think about the discipleship pathway, and we think about the the circle that you see out there that we've been talking about, and that's what we talk about, the biblical one another's. We need to connect relationally. We need to be in each other's lives. We need to encourage one another. Be there to pray for one another. Be in the battle together. Not be like those tribes that said, you know what? You guys offered yourselves willingly, but we're going to sit back. No, we all offer ourselves willingly. We all join together. We all fight together. We're in this together as one family so that's the second thing we see the first is a call to praise for God being sovereign the second is we see how these tribes responded some of them did well some of them didn't but then the Lord used their fighting to sovereignly work a miracle to rout the Canaanites and then third the third part of this passage of scripture I call it a tale of two women Charles Dickens wrote a tale of two cities. Here's a tale of two women. We've already been introduced to one last week, but then we're introduced to another woman. So look at verses 24 through 30. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Of twin-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head. Can you see how it's sung? This is like a wonderful song, boys and girls. She struck Chrysera. she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. He lay still between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Great song, right? (laughs) It's almost comical in a way because it slows down. It's like, we are celebrating this woman who just killed this man. It's slow moving. It's graphic. And she's called most blessed. Now, we may not understand why they're supposed to be excited about jail, putting a tent spike in Sisera's temple. And that's because we're Americans and we've never experienced persecution. But if you're in a country where you see oppression and oppression and tyranny and tyranny and you see injustice all over the place, when somebody gets justice, you want to stand up and clap. And That's kind of what they're doing here. They're like, yes, we're excited that Jail did what she did. She killed this man who was an oppressor. For 20 years, we had been oppressed by this tyrant and she finally killed him. So that's Woman number one. We've, we've already seen this. We saw that last week. But here's woman number two. Sisera's mama. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? Her wisest princess answered. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. The mother's at the window waiting for Sisera. Now we know what happened. What happened to Sisera? He's dead in the tent. But his mom doesn't know that. So she's at the window waiting for him to come home. Where's his chariot? When's he going to come home? Where is he? And then one of her attendants, one of her princesses says, well, you know how war is. It's taken him a long time to rape and pillage the women. It's taken him a long time to, to, to get the spoils of war. It's kind of cold and calculated, the way that this, these women talk. It's, it's as if it's normal practice for Sisera to rape and pillage and plunder, and it's just taken him longer than normal to do that. And the point is, he's never going to come back because he's been killed by the hands of another woman. Now remember, this is a song to be sung. I said there were three parts to this song, and then there's a final theological point. And the final theological point is the most important. So the final theological point is the very last verse, the very last phrase of the song. And what does verse 31 tell us? Here's the, here's the final theological point. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years now there's two main points in this last theological point okay there's there's two statements here first is so may all your enemies perish o lord god we want all of your enemies to perish in other words this is why we pray thy kingdom come As Christians, are we even allowed to pray this? Lord, destroy your enemies. That sounds not very Christian-y, does it? Lord, destroy all your enemies. Well, we as Christians should long not to take matters into our own hands, but we long for a day of judgment when God will destroy all His enemies and right all the wrongs. On the day of judgment... Jesus will vindicate His people. He will destroy all of His enemies. And right now, we, 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 we said this earlier when we recited the Heidelberg Catechism, question 123, earlier in the worship service. Question, what does your kingdom mean in the Lord's Prayer? And we said this, so rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that we more and more submit to you. Preserve your church and make it grow. And here's the, the, the thing we're praying, destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force that revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all and in all. What what, What we should be praying is, Lord, we want you to destroy the work of the devil. We want you to enter into battle against our spiritual enemies, forces in the heavenly places. And would you... Help us stand in the battle and defeat these enemies that are coming against us. Not necessarily people, but spiritual forces of wickedness. And then the second stanza could summarize Israel's problem in the entire book of Judges. The ESV has it a little bit different than if you have an NIV or you have a New American Standard or maybe even a King James, you're probably going to get a better literal translation. I'm not sure why the ESV does this, but it says, your friends will be like the sun as he rises in his might. Literally, it says, the ones who love you. The ones who love you, Lord, will shine like the sun. They will be bright lights in a dark world. What has been Israel's greatest issue, problem, as God's covenant people in Judges? It goes back to Deuteronomy 6, 5-6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What keeps getting Israel in trouble time and time again? They fail to love the Lord their God with all their heart. It's a heart issue. You can summarize the Old Testament with this idea. When Israel loved the Lord their God with their whole soul, mind, heart, and strength, they were a light to the nations around them. They were living for the glory of God as a holy people when they loved the Lord. Isaiah 49.6 says this, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servants to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was Israel's responsibility, to be a light to the nations so that God's glory would reach the end of the earth. And how are they to be a light to the nations? By loving the Lord their God with everything that they had. And what's the opposite of that? When they engaged in idolatry, when their hearts were drawn away from loving the Lord, when they rebelled, what happened to them? They lived in darkness. They lived in rebellion, and they were not a light to the nations around them. They looked like the nations around them. And what does the New Testament teach us about lights? We've heard it twice this morning. Our call to worship and our time of confession, we have already heard this call to be lights. Matthew 5, 14-16 You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before others. Let your light shine what does it say here those who love you will shine as the sun that rises in its might what does paul say in philippians 2 14 through 16 do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of god without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul talks about us shining brightly in a crooked generation. Do we not live in a crooked and twisted generation? Yes. Do you know what the brightest star in the galaxy is? Sirius. And I'm being serious about that. It is. S-I-R-I-U-S. It's twice the size of the sun and twice as bright. It can be seen anywhere on the planet. What does Paul call us? Lights. Some translations say stars. We're to shine brightly in a dark world. How? Paul tells us how. Holding fast or holding out the word of God, the word of Christ. Now, you can take that two ways in the Greek. I've studied this Philippians passage, and I think you can take it both ways. It could be you're holding tight to God's word, or you're holding out God's word. Either way, what you're doing is, I think it's both, as you hold tight to God's word, and you hold out God's word, you're being a light to the world. It all comes back to the authority of God's Word. As we submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word and we hold that out as the hope in a dark world, as we love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, we shine like lights in a dark and crooked generation. We illuminate Jesus in the darkness of a sinful world. This song calls us to bless the Lord, praise the Lord. Because of his sovereign power. Because of his victory over his enemies. God alone gets the glory. But he does demand a response. What's the response? God calls us to love him. God calls us to step out in faith and serve him. God calls us to shine like stars in a dark world. God says, let your light so shine before men. So how do we respond to our Savior who has already conquered our enemies by dying on the cross and rising again? How do we do that? Well, verses 2 and 9 tell us. We don't have to guess. Go back and look at verses 2 and 9. How do we do that? Let's let the text answer it for us. Verse 2, that the leaders took the lead in Israel that the people offered themselves willingly. Verse 9, My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly. They offered themselves willingly. Would you offer yourself willingly to the Lord? May you shine brightly in a dark world. May we encourage one another in this spiritual battle. Now, This is a song that was sung after victory. It's a new song, never been sung before. A new song sung after victory. What does Psalm 40 tell us, verses 2 and 3? We looked at this last week. I want to look at it again. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So here's my question for you. What's your song? What's in your mouth? What new song does God put in your mouth? Is it a song of trust to the Lord? And speaking of new songs, do you know when we get to heaven we're going to sing a new song? And we already know what the words are because it's in Revelation. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. They sang a new song. And what's the song? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood... You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus alone is worthy to receive all of our worship because he was slain. Literally in the Greek, he was slaughtered on that cross. He bought us. He purchased us out of our slavery to sin. He died in our place. He shed His blood. He made us a kingdom of priests. He made us a holy nation. He set us apart. The only response we can give to this crucified Savior is a new song of joy, of hope, of praise. That our lives would be a new song. Now, we will sing that new song one day in heaven, and I can't wait to sing it with millions upon millions of believers all over the world. But today, and until that day, we should be singing the new song every day because we've been saved by grace. We should have the joy of the Lord. And here's what happens. When you have the joy of the Lord as your strength, And God has put a new song in your mouth. It has to come out. And that's where you shine your light. That's how you shine your light. You shine your light by telling people about the joy that you have in Jesus as your Savior. So this week, let us be like the Israelites that did the right thing. We finally see them doing something right here. Let's imitate it. Let us offer ourselves willingly to the Lord. Let us offer ourselves willing to, to the Lord, and let's serve Him with a new song in our mouths as we shine the light of His glory in a dark world that desperately needs Jesus, especially this time of year. Let your light shine. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Heaven, thank you so much for putting this new song into our hearts through the death of your son Jesus on the cross. For lifting us up out of the miry bog, of lifting us up out of our sin and our shame and our guilt and putting us on the solid rock of Jesus. Putting that new song in our heart and in our mouth. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us the strength and the grace and the power this week to let our light shine. It's not very difficult for us to see darkness all around us. And we can either contribute to that darkness or we can impact that darkness by being a light in a dark place. So my prayer for us, Lord, is that as we leave this place, we would be like those in verse 31, those that love you, will shine as the sun in its brightness. May we be lights on a hill. May we shine brightly. May we shine like stars holding out the word of Christ to a world that desperately needs Jesus. And Lord, realize that we need each other to do this, that we we need to offer ourselves willingly, but we need to all do it together as brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging one another in this battle together, cheering one another on, praying for one another, being in each other's lives so that we can fight this spiritual battle together. Help us to be unified in purpose as we shine our lights to glorify you. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. We thank you. Help us to be the light you've called us to be. Help us to shine brightly this week for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.